Good morning, Springville. Yes, you're going to have to listen to this. Um, so thank you, everybody, for been praying. I was supposed to be up here two weeks ago to preach this third commandment in our Ten Commandments series. Um, shout out to Lester for doing what he did. Uh, thanks, brother. Um, if you ever wondered what Darth Vader would sound like preaching, today is the day that your wish comes true. Um, but before we jump into our Ten Commandments series, real quick, I just want a, a pastoral moment with you. Um, as you heard, there's lots that has been happening as a church family, and there's lots happening right now. And we are a large family at Springville, which means that at this time of the year, especially, there's lots going on. And with the fall, especially, um, there's a lot launching. There's lots of ministry needs. There's lots of programs um, going on, which means we have some needs. And as we kind of get into fall rhythms and ministries and events, uh, we have specific roles that still have some, some spots to be filled. And so around the chairs close to you, um, it looks something like this. There's a handout with 10 specific uh, roles or ministries or teams where we're still looking for uh, people to, to plug in, to serve, and be involved. Um, there's a great variety of things there. So if you'd like, you and like people don't get along, you can just have a relationship with coffee um, on the coffee ministry team, right? Um, if you have all your teeth and you smile and you like people, there's lots of options there as well. And so if you take a look at, there's 10 different ministries here on this handout, and there's something that you think, hey, I, I'd like to plug in. Each of the contact information for those teams are there. Or after service, if you want to hang out, um, come chat with me at the Connections uh, desk, and I can definitely point you in the right direction. Uh, because I think at Springville, what's really important to understand is that a healthy church isn't just a few people doing lots of things, but it's lots of us doing a few things together well. And so this gives us an opportunity. So I just encourage you, as you're kind of thinking about the fall, uh, getting your shackets out and putting your boots on and your toques on, uh, there might be some specific ministries here at Springville uh, that would be really, really helpful to us and encouraging for you. Okay, good. Ten Commandments, here we go. So we're doing this a little bit backwards because Ed preached on the fourth commandment last week and now we're coming back to the third. So a little bit of a Quentin Tarantino movie happening here at Springville. Uh, if you don't understand that, don't worry about it. But remember with the Ten Commandments, the order matters, right? Ten Commandments aren't just kind of laws that drop out of heaven to Israel about how to live within God's graces. The order actually matters because what we've seen in the redemptive story as we get into the Ten Commandments is that God is the one that graciously takes the initiative to save. You with me on that? That he's the one that initiates with his grace. He saves them, he changes them, and then he sends them, right? That's the story of this um, this passage. That's what leads to these 10 commandments. The 10 commandments are God's way of saying, hey, I've freed you. Now here's how to stay free. Often, if we just pluck the 10 commandments out, they can kind of read as just like a legalistic list of killjoys or shalt nots, right? And you're like, oh, that doesn't sound fun. This God does not sound very joyful at all. But the Ten Commandments happen within this structure of redemption where it's actually God's gracious gift to his people on how they can live life to the full, right? So think about them as 10 boundaries or fence posts that God puts up to keep his people within his grace that they've already experienced. And if you remember the first two commandments that leads to the third commandment, the first commandment is, well, don't worship false gods, have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is don't worship the true God in false ways, right? Don't make images or idols. 
And the third commandment that we're going to get to is, again, one of, uh, it, it's fun. Like, it's a fun one. And we're going to have some course correction on how we understand this. But the Ten Commandments are not the first time that we've seen God say ten things. What's very interesting is this is not the first time that we've seen God speak ten words or ten kind of proclamations. Can you think of where this has happened already in the redemptive story? Genesis chapter 1, and God said. Ten times. That's repeated in Genesis chapter one. So this whole structure of the 10 commandments is God's redemption of Israel and his giving of the law at Sinai is him inaugurating a new creation. It's him saying, I'm still the one who gives life. I'm still the good God. And here's how to experience who I am now. Go and live in my new creation, right? So Exodus 20 verse seven brings us to the third commandment. And here's what it says. Do not... Misuse the name of the Lord, your God, or take the Lord's name in vain. Why? Because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Now, right away, some of you, you're like, take the Lord's name in vain. I know this very well, Dustin. Just read it, pray, and sit down. We're done, right? Because what do you think about? Right away, don't take the Lord's name in vain. You think, well, don't cuss. That's bad, right? Don't say OMG, make sure it's gosh, right? And don't say Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, right? When you think about taking the Lord's name in vain, what you think about is you say, you take whatever name for God, and then if you kind of have it as a cuss, right? Or you kind of tack it on in a disrespectful or irreverent way, or an inappropriate way, a a use of God's name, then that's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Now, yes, it does mean that. And don't do that, okay? But this passage is far more than that. There's far more happening here in the story and within scripture with this command than simply, well, be careful about what you say. That is true. We have to be careful about what we say. Right, but it's not less than that. It's more than that. So here's two questions that we wanna get at so that we can apply this. The first is, what is the significance of God's name anyway? What's the big deal? Words are just words, right? You just kind of inject them with meaning. What's the big deal about God's name? And the second question is, what does it actually mean then to take his name in vain? Okay, so we're gonna answer those two questions. First, what is the significance of God's name? Why is this a big deal? Well, what is in a name? When you think about the significance of names, today, often, you know, we name our kids, usually it's because it's like, well, I'm gonna honor somebody that I I respect or, or admire, or it's just like, I like how it sounded, right? You're just like, I just like, I like how Jennifer sounds, you're a Jennifer, right? And, and often that's kind of as far as we go with, with names. But in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, names carried a great deal of significance. It carried a lots of weight. Someone's name was specifically attached to their character or it was aspirational about the type of person that they are to become. So think about names as a container for a person. That's what a name means. And today, again, most of us know what our name means. Some of us might not even know what our name means, right? And so we don't have the same kind of significance or weight about names, especially if you're a celebrity, because celebrities name their kids stuff like Blue Ivy and Northwest and X-A-12. Elon Musk named his son X-A-12. And I'm saying it because you can say it, but it's not even a word. It's a bunch of math stuff. But he did that because he's Elon Musk, right? 
So, so again, we're in a culture where like names kind of become like a way to not actually speak of your character or your nature, but it's kind of like, well, I like it, or it's going to be funny or different, or it's going to make the person stand out, right? But here, we understand that names actually contain something about the person. So just think about this. When I think about my wife and I hear the word Raquel, what happens? Well, my mind is flooded with all sorts of things about her. I hear her name and I picture her face. I hear her name and I hear her laugh, right? I hear her name and I think about what I admire about her, okay? So a name actually contains, it's supposed to kind of hyperlink us to the character of the person. And biblically, that's exactly what we see about the significance of names. Throughout the Old Testament, we have key names that mean exactly what this person is like. Abraham as the father of many. That's exactly what Abraham is. Aaron, as a high-mounted or exalted one, and it's exactly Aaron's job as the high priest to bring God who is exalted on the mountain down to the people and the people up to God. Isaiah, meaning God is salvation. Isaiah is used as a prophet to speak into a moment where Israel has forgotten that God saves. Ruth, a compassionate friend, and that's exactly what Ruth is. So over and over and over again, we see that names actually signify the characteristic and the entire person of that name. But also throughout scripture, we see names being used as ownership or responsibility. The only thing I could think about was in Toy Story, how Woody has Andy written on the bottom of his, his foot, right? Why? Well, because he belongs to Andy. He's Andy's toy, right? And that's exactly what happens. Often in the ancient culture, a slave would actually have their slave owner's name branded or tattooed on them, sometimes on their foreheads. So it was unmistakable who they belonged to. So there's all that happening here about name. And then God speaks about the importance of his name. So you feel the significance already, right? All throughout scripture, we hear different things about God's name, but there's one really epic, memorable scene in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter three, just a few chapters before the 10 commandments where Moses has this encounter at the burning bush. You remember this story? He has this encounter and God shows up and it's wild, right? He just kind of shows up and he's like, this is holy ground. Something special is happening right now. And I'm about to tell you my name. And and God tells Moses his name. Why? Because it's tied to redemption. So what God's doing is he's saying, I'm taking you and sending you to rescue Israel and I'm gonna tell you my name. Because Moses, this is very smart. Moses is like, okay, I'll do this, but who should I tell them sent me? Like like who referred me to this job, right? That's a good question. Because Moses isn't just gonna bust into the Pharaoh's court and be like, hey, I'm here, a bush told me this. Can you let Israel go? So he's like, no, no, hold on. A bush is not going to do, okay? This shrub told me that you need to let the people go. So what is your name? Who do I tell them sent me? And if you remember God's answer in that passage, he says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I will be God for you. So go. Now in Hebrew, God's name is unpronounceable. There's no vowels, only consonants. And so in Hebrew, we kind of have to like make it sound like something. But in reality, the idea is that God's name is actually unpronounceable. 
But in Hebrew, it's like this, this breathing sound of aye, asher, aye. Aye, asher, aye. And some Hebrew scholars say that that was actually the mimicking of inhaling and exhaling of breath. So that God's name is literally on the front of our minds every single time we do this. Because it's those very breaths that God gave us life through. And so when God is saying, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, he is saying, you don't label me because I don't belong to you, right? You don't tell me who I am. I will show you what I am like. That's my name. So notice that this actually captures something about God's character, right? God is saying, well, you can't just kind of like tell me what I'm like. I'm going to show you what I'm like. So God simply is. He is not dependent on anything or anyone. He is eternal and existent, and he is self-defined. So God is only known through the means by which he reveals himself to us, and Moses gets to experience that, that this is a God who shows up. This is a God who moves towards us. This is a God who defines what he is like as to avoid any labels that we might put on him. He names himself. We don't name him. He's self-defined. We don't define him. He tells us what relationship with him as our creator is gonna be like. We don't decide that. That's all wrapped up in God's name. So all throughout your Bible, sometimes you'll see Yahweh as God's name. Or in English, you'll just see capitalized Lord, right? L-O-R-D. And that's, that's, again, biblical scholars' best way of saying, well, here's the name. Although we can't pronounce the name because he's God, this is what we'll do so that we actually have a placeholder for God. And then all throughout Scripture, we have this name defined with different characteristic traits. We have that this God, that Yahweh, is compassionate. He's merciful. He's sovereign. He's good. He's full of loving kindness. He's patient. He's a just judge, but the word by far attached to God's name more than any all throughout scripture is that God is holy, that God is holy. I'd referred to this last week from the fourth commandment because there's a day that's holy, right? You remember what holy means? It means set apart. It means special. It means that it's not common or ordinary, that it's extraordinary and special, that God's name is holy, that he himself is set apart and distinct. He's like no other. And then he saves Israel and says what? Go and be holy. Why? Because I am holy. And then the 10 commandments are given as a way to protect that holiness, to say, listen, you know me now. I've revealed what I'm like. So now go and be a walking billboard to the world who doesn't know me to show them that I am not like any other. God's name is holy. And all throughout scripture, we see him put his name on things to label them, to designate them as holy or belonging to him, just like Andy on the bottom of Woody's foot. And that's what's happening here. So that's the significance of God's name that we see. That's why this is so heavy. That's why this is a big deal, that we wouldn't be irreverent or casual with God's name because God is not deserving of that, but he's deserving of awe and reverence as we approach him. Second thing then, if that's the case, then what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? To take God's name in vain. Well, the word take there in Hebrew is interesting. It's the Hebrew word nasa. Say nasa. 
Awesome. Just remember, it's NASA, right? Easy. But it's NASA, okay? That's take. Now, it's key to understanding this commandment to understand that word. Because that word, it does mean take, but right away we think, oh, it means like how we use it with our mouth. It does mean that, but it's more than that. Because take, this word nasa means to carry or bear. In other words, it means to represent. And there's only four ways that God puts his name on things throughout scripture. The first is on Israel. The second is that he puts it on the temple where he meets with his people. The third is that he puts it in Jerusalem. And the fourth is that he puts it on certain Gentiles who bear his name. That shows up in Amos 8, where there's actually non-Jews who belong to the Lord, right? And he, they bear his name. Names signify this kind of ownership. But ownership also signifies representation. And that's why this is significant. To carry a name or bear a name is to represent the person with that name. So I'm the eldest of four siblings. And uh, by the time my siblings got to high school... Borland meant something. I'm not going to tell you if it meant good things or bad things, but let's just say that there was an expectation about what Borland was going to be like. So my siblings had to deal with a lot of, oh, are you Dustin's younger sibling? Because why? Well, because I carried the name. I represented the family in a way that was either positive or negative. I'll let you decide. And there was a reputation built around what that name meant. For those of you who are business owners, think about your business. You don't put your name on inferior products or have employees behave in any way that they want. Why? Because they're representing the name, right? They're representing the business. This is, an, this is key to understanding what this idea of taking God's name looks like. Because what's happening here is God is saying to his people, not, not to everybody who doesn't know him. He's speaking to those of us who know him and he's saying to them, hey, I've saved you and now I'm sending you. So make sure you represent me accurately and truthfully. That's what this means. Now, the word for vain in, in the Hebrew here is like false or deceitful or empty, right? So that starts to make more sense of the verse, doesn't it? As you start to think about what does it mean to take God's name in vain? It's not, you're emptying it of its, oh, these flies, the bats, like, come on. <laughs> that you're emptying the name of its significance, right? That, that, that you're actually taking it in vain, you're misusing it, or you're using the name in a way that is false to God's character. That's what's happening here. Now, there's one passage where both the Hebrew words for take and God's name are used right beside each other. And they become a really important interpretive key for us, right? So this is how we as good students of the Bible will let the Bible read the Bible, right? So a few chapters later, just past the 10 commandments in Exodus 28, there's all these details about what it's gonna be like for the priests to represent Israel and stand between God and God's people. And there's a really interesting passage about what the high priest wears, right? You guys usually skip that in your Bible reading. You're like, I don't know, right? But there's a, a, a chest piece that the high priest wears and there's 12 gemstones, jewels on it. And each of those gems represent a tribe of Israel. And then right across the forehead of the high priest was a gold plaque and it said, holy to Yahweh, holy to the Lord. And then what does God say to the high priest? 
you are carrying, bearing the name of Israel into my presence. So do you see how this is more than just like saying a name, but this is actually representing God's name. So he's saying through this commandment, just as Israel is represented by the high priest in God's presence, so too do God's people go out and represent God's name to the watching world. And if you remember just one chapter back, the whole rationale for Sinai, the entire rationale, the whole reason God gives the 10 commandments is in Exodus 19, verse four through six. He says this, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to me. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all people, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So do you see the significance and the weightiness now of what it means for God to say, Israel, I saved you, and now I'm sending you, so bear my name truthfully. You belong to me. I'm stamping you. I'm branding you with my name. And not to get into this, but you can come talk to me after. This is exactly what the mark of the beast is about in Revelation. It's exactly what the mark of the beast is about. It's not about vaccines. I'm sorry. It's just not. But it is about everything about our allegiances, either to the beast or to the lamb. And who are we going to give ownership of our life to? Right? That's what it's all about. So Revelation is pulling this exact language forward to help us understand that our lives will belong to someone. Who are we going to give our lives to? To what end are we going to say, my, my life is worth living for this cause, this person, this end? That's exactly this. So this is what's happening in this command. Now fast forward all the way to Jesus's words about the Lord's Prayer, when he's talking about prayer. All the way forward, remember what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is that it's almost like this, this vision for a new Sinai. Just as there was a new creation moment at Sinai, Jesus is standing on the, uh, on the Mount, delivering the Sermon on the Mount to reset his people for new creation, what it looks like to live within the life that he is giving them. And Jesus summarizes the entire Old Testament, specifically the Ten Commandments, by saying what? Love God, love others. The entire Ten Commandments are summarized into those buckets, right? And then in the Sermon on the Mount, right before Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he teaches them how not to pray. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he says, don't come with empty or vain phrases. He is calling them back to revering and honoring God's name as a posture for how we approach God that we wouldn't approach God carelessly or in vain, but that we would approach God truthfully in worship. And then the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your This now helps us understand exactly what's happening there. Some of us are just like, oh, I guess like, you know, Jesus' name, the Father's name, I don't, the name, right? But, but right there, what, what, God, what Jesus is doing is he's taking everything that's true about the nature and character of God that's just contained in his name and he's bringing it forward and he's saying that our posture as those that belong to him is to be one of honoring his name. Uh, there's an Old Testament scholar named Carmen um, Imes and she wrote a book called Bearing God's Name. And it's about all of this. It's based on a 300 page dissertation that she wrote on this commandment 
right? Yes, nerds do this. It's amazing, right? Thank God for nerds. But here's what she says about Jesus's Sermon on the Mount in relationship to this. Listen, Jesus, Jesus is, that's always weird with the double S and the apostrophe. Yeah, okay, good. Jesus's prayer, hallowed be your name, is not just wishful thinking, hoping that Yahweh is doing well up there. His prayer implies a personal commitment to honoring that name through a life of faithful obedience. Jesus fulfills Israel's vocation to bear Yahweh's name with honor. Jesus is taking that on himself. And that's one of the most shocking parts of Jesus's teaching and life is that he himself claims to be the embodiment of the name that he claims to be the one true representative of the one true God. That's what makes Jesus so scandalous, amen? We can't get around it. I know for skeptics and for those of us who are not yet following Jesus, like, well, did he really claim to be God? Repeatedly and emphatically, he claims to be God. And one of the ways he does it is by assuming God's name, the name, Yahweh, and taking it on and saying, to see me is to see God. That's what he's claiming. And in John 17, he prays this amazing prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer. And he takes God's name, just like the priest does. And he says, I'm the one who have, 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 has bared, borne your name to your people. I've shown, I've represented you well and accurately. And then he says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only one, the one true God and Jesus, the Christ, the one you have sent. I have manifested your name to your people. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at. So here's the good news here. Whereas you and I violate all the commandments, where we violate the first commandment by worshiping non-gods and lesser things, Jesus only truthfully worships God perfectly. Whereas we live with sin and break the second commandment by making gods out of all sorts of other things that don't deserve that honor, Jesus only honors God as most high and perfectly obeys. This third commandment, Jesus perfectly obeys by representing God accurately and truthfully. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Apostle Paul reflects on exactly this in Philippians 2, which is probably one of my favorite passages about this. Watch this. Verse 5 through 11. So adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, becoming human. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's for this reason that God has highly exalted him and has gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, if that's true, it means that every single one of our mouths one day will declare Jesus as the one true God and it will be done either because we are worshiping him as our Lord or we are acknowledging him as our judge. And that is wrapped up right here. And Jesus is claiming this for himself. That he is saying that it's, it's the name above all names that he has been given because it's in Yahweh that salvation is given alone. 
So how do we apply this? How do we think about this? How can we respond this morning to this? Well, I think in two ways. First way that we can think about this and respond is that we need to be thinking very, very intentionally about ways that we misuse God's name, how we misuse God's name. The second way is how we misrepresent God's character. Okay, so first, in ways that we maybe misuse God's name. Yikes. Oh, I just killed him. Oh no, he's back. Resurrection, praise the Lord. Get these guys out of here. Don't misuse God's name. So, we misuse God's name when we attach his name to beliefs or behavior that he doesn't approve of. We also misuse God's name when we speak on behalf of God about things that either he has not or we speak incorrectly about things that he already has. So this can sound like, hey, God told me, followed by whatever. This can, this can be like, hey, God teaches that God thinks this, followed by something that is incorrect, followed by a personal preference or a perspective. That's us carelessly invoking God's name or his word to try to add power to something that we want. It's trying to take God's name to endorse something that we personally like or desire. That is a way that we misuse God's name. And listen, we do this with God's word all the time. Lots of people will say stuff like, the Bible says, and then they'll follow it up with whatever topic they're passionate about, whatever political issue they think is most urgent, whatever moral or ethical issue they think is silly or outdated, and they will put God's name and God's word on something that God has not spoken on or has spoken directly against. We misuse God's name when we either say more than what God has said or we ignore what he already has said. And listen, here's the danger, especially in our digital age with endless amounts of content on the internet as Christian, that there are tons of false teaching about Christianity and about the word of God by people who are writing books, hosting conferences, filling churches, running ministries, and saying things that God hasn't said or making stuff up entirely to either villainize culture or to fit in with culture by using God's name. And sometimes it shows up where it's very subtle, where it's like, yeah, the gospel's great. Jesus, awesome. But plus this, right? So it's kind of like a Jesus plus, and then fill in, Jesus plus voting conservative. Jesus plus landing on, on this exact view about this moral thing. Jesus plus, this is how we're gonna treat a certain community of people outside the church. Jesus plus, you only read the King James because it's the inspired English translation. Whatever it is, right? But it's Jesus plus something and it's subtle, but we're misusing God's name and God's word when we do that. The other way this shows up is Jesus minus something. This is just, hey, Jesus is great, but was he really serious about like that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it was just like, it's only God's word. Like it's Paul. Paul, it was Paul though. Paul said that, right? It's like, oh, I don't know. That was like a cultural view in the moment. Uh, was Jesus really, like Jesus really serious about all that stuff about marriage and sexuality and personhood? Was Jesus really serious about what he talked about, the economics of the kingdom and money and possessions? Was Jesus really serious about what he talked about when, when he, when he uh, mentioned eternity and judgment? That is how we can misuse God's name and God's word. When we don't take what God has said seriously, when we try to squish them into cultural views that are so temporary. 
Uh, one commentator um, just kind of, it stuck with me. He said, where God has shut his holy mouth, I shouldn't dare open mine. I think that's true. We misrepresent God's name when we treat his word carelessly, like he's not holy, or that his word is common and just kind of up to us to decide whether it suits me in my cultural moment or in my particular circumstance. But that's not how the life of God's word comes to life in us. It's that we would honor it and obey it and follow it that those of us who know Jesus would take his words seriously, that we would see him as the word made flesh and that we would follow after him in obedience with all of our life, amen? That's the first way. The second way is that we misrepresent God's character. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been misrepresented? Have you ever been misrepresented? It sucks. Whether it's your motives or something you've said or something you've done, I think all of us in some way maybe has been, have been misrepresented or misunderstood. Something's been assumed about you or something's been associated with you because of something. I mean, today, in our cultural moment especially, to be a Christian immediately gets us associated with certain things, right? That, that, that we end up getting misrepresented and then we're like, whoa, whoa no, no, that, not, like, not like that, right? Like, not that time of Christian, not, right? And those of you, you know, just in, in whatever social influences and spheres you're in, some of you have been misrepresented. Even a better question than that is, how many of you have had God misrepresented to you about what God is like? And you actually haven't you know, got into the word to see what God is like. Allow him to define himself. Allow him to reveal himself to you. What does that look like? This misrepresentation of God's name really calls us to represent God accurately and truthfully to the watching world. And in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we see Peter using the exact same language from Exodus 19 right here to remind the church. So listen, he's talking to you and me as followers of Jesus. If you were not a follower of Jesus, you can't even do this yet. But here's what he says. Listen, in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 through 10. But you, plural, community, us, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Why? To sit down and just enjoy him? No, so that we may go and proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see how representation is so important? That we would accurately represent God to the watching world. That we would be a holy people because he's made us holy, that we would live with social distinction and non-conformity to some of the things in our culture, that we would live with moral resistance and distinction to the cultural morals and values of our society. But notice that holiness, this call to distinction, this call to representation, that the purpose of it isn't withdrawal into our own thing, it's mission. You see that? It's so that we may proclaim the goodness of God. Not retreat, but faithful presence in our culture. Living as nonconformists, smack dab in the middle of our culture. So here's what this means. How do we misrepresent God? Well, if your views about sexuality and marriage and personhood or identity or the human body or abortion or politics or however you stream and spend and drink and eat is the same as the dominant culture around you, guess what? You're not marked by holiness and you're probably misrepresenting God's character. That's this call. It's serious. And a few verses later in this same passage in 1 Peter, 
He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Meaning when you get out there in the world, keep your conduct accurately representing the God that you claim to know, right? And sometimes we forget this church, that our witness to the watching world matters. Like I've sat with people and they're like, doesn't matter. They're gonna hate us because they hated Jesus first. I'm like, what? That's a weird flex. That's a weird application of that verse, right? No, no, our witness to the watching world matters. Why? Because people associate what Jesus is like with how followers of Jesus behave. That's convicting. That, that changes everything about how I live and where I live and what I do, how I speak and what I think about my own conduct in the eyes of others. And listen, we can all think of people who have set great examples of God's love to us. I can. Many of us are sitting here because of that. But we can also think of others who have misrepresenting God's character to us and set us on a path of months, maybe years, sometimes decades of just being disenfranchised from God's grace and his love. This is important. This says some, how we live says something about the God we claim to worship. What is the church saying to the watching world about what God is like today? That's a question. Because listen, if we're just as triggered, just as fearful of the future or the now, just as alarmed about everything as everybody else is who don't know Jesus, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. If we're approaching sexuality and romance and using our bodies the same as everybody else who doesn't know Jesus, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. If we're spending our money and vacationing and streaming and consuming the same as everybody else who doesn't know Jesus, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. If we're just as tribalized and defensive and triggered about things that ultimately do not matter, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. So this commandment plainly to us, Springville, is that how we live matters. If you are a follower of Jesus, you bear his name to the watching world. This causes us into some self-reflection about the ways that I am living. Am I living faithfully and accurately? Not perfectly, don't hear what I'm not saying, but faithfully and accurately according to who God is, what God is like and how God feels about sinners in the watching world. Am I accurately portraying this? This is how we bear God's name faithfully. Colossians 3.17 says we do it in more than just words, right? Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's the good news and I'm done. As Romans 10.13 tells us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That we can call on his name. While today is still today, those of us who don't know Jesus, God wants to reveal himself. He wants to show you what he's like. He's pursuing you already. And the good news is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how do we respond to this? Well, we worship God truthfully. We sing today because he's worthy of our praises, amen? He's worthy of our highest praise because there is no name above his name. There is no name under heaven that anyone will be saved except for the name of Jesus. That there's no God besides him, there's no God like him. And no God loves like him, forgives like him, rescues like him, heals like him, and restores like him. So he deserves our praises. His name is Jesus. And he has the name that is above every name. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he is worthy to be praised. Let me pray. Father, 
we've all misrepresented you in ways, some less serious, some more serious. But today, I just pray that you would redirect our gaze, our eyes to the ways that maybe right now we are thinking in ways that don't represent you well. We're speaking in ways that don't represent you well. We're living in ways that don't represent you well. I just pray for conviction for each of us in this way. We know we won't do this perfectly, but we want to do this as accurately as possible according to the gospel. For those of us here who do not yet know you by name, who do not know what you are like, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would reveal yourself right now. That in the coming days, we wouldn't be able to shake the fact that we yearn deeply to know you as our creator and that you would reveal yourself, your good name, your good character, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and wishes all to be saved and live life to the full with you. We give you praise because your name is above every name. And we look forward to the day where the only name that will be remembered in the scope of eternity is yours because nobody else's name will matter. Nothing else will matter, good or bad, because your name will be the one that we will sing praises about forever and ever. We love you, we need you. And we ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.